Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just a month before the legendary actress Cicely Tyson died last January, her memoir came out. In it, she wrote, I was determined to do all I could to alter the narrative about black people, to change the way black women in particular were perceived by reflecting our dignity. Today, we listen back to a conversation with Emory University film professor Nsinga Burton about the pioneering work and legacy of Cecily Tyson. First, A new exhibition of works by emerging artists is on view at the Mint Gallery. Sweet Discord is their eighth annual juried show, this year partnering with the organization Black Women in Visual Art, BWVA. The founders of that group, Lauren Jackson Harris and Aricia Mia DeMar were the jurors for Sweet Discord. They join me now via Zoom, along with Victoria Sauer, one of the artists featured in the show. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Daricia and Lauren, what led you to create Black Women in Visual Art? Well, I was a gallerist and curator for a local space here in Atlanta. And as a budding creative, as a budding, you know, art worker, I realized the need for networking and colleagues are very important in my success and having like-minded individuals around me. And so I met Dericia at an event and I quickly attached to her. She was newly here. She moved back here in 2017, 18, Mm -hmm. and we connected from that point. And she would always support any of the ideas I had. We attended art events together. And I said one day, I was like, we just start an organization where there's women like us who are trying to be professionals in the art space, working to be professionals in the art space, and want to continue to grow and are like-minded in that way. So she said, why don't we just do it? In October 2019, we birthed and launched Black Women in Visual Art, and it has been a great blessing since. Mm. And how did the partnership with Mint Gallery come about? From day one, Mint has been a friend to both Lauren and myself and to BWVA. And this is our first juried collaboration. We have worked collaboratively for exhibitions before, but this gave us an opportunity to have our personal and professional interest in art sort of collide but it just was an invitation from Jessica and she has been supportive again of us throughout our journey. It's, it's been very short, but she's been somebody that we can depend on and she believes in us and appreciates our vision. This is Jessica, the director of Mint. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's now the creative director. Oh, okay. Mint is known for showcasing works of emerging artists. What is the focus of this exhibition, Sweet Discord? Sweet Discord is basically what we received in terms of 
what we selected. So we didn't have any idea. It's a juried exhibition for those who may not know. It's an open call. It was the eighth national artist call. So artists from all over the country were able to submit to the, the juried exhibition for us to be able to view the artwork, browse the artist's CV and bio, and decide what we think would be a good fit for the space. And Lauren and I divided this list in half, <laughs> and these pieces really resonated with us. And for some reason, they all had this beautiful sweetness, but there was also shadowy uh, components to them. And and this was what we selected without even knowing what the other was looking at. So the title and the artwork is representative of, we think, being on the heels of the global pandemic and artists wanting to move things in, in a more normal direction or getting back to normalcy, but also very reflective in the changes that have occurred and the opportunity to be reflective during the sort of global sheltering and and place that we experienced. So there was a sense of sweetness in the silence and solitude that may have come from the time that we had to spend in COVID away from each other. But there's also this sense of change and discord, quite frankly, with how things have dramatically changed and and changed in that moment. We'll hear from Victoria Sauer in a moment. What can you tell us about some of the other artists whose works are on view? So there are several artists from Atlanta, from the the metro Atlanta area. One artist that I have worked with before, Lance McBride, he has a piece called Necromancer. It's a very small ink drawing that has some um, color pencil feature in there, but it's this really small drawing that is really detailed and you have to kind of get really close to it to see how special it is and how talented he is. Another favorite is an origami project, Gentrification Version 2 by Anna Grace Birch. It is a installation piece of receipts that have been like slightly burned and discolored and they're hanging in like a grid-like form to represent her view of gentrification. That is a really special piece. Dorisia, how about you? Yes, there's a local artist, Tamisha Faxo. She's actually a a former attorney, and she had a series of beautiful, just stunning photographs of young girls having their hair washed. It's titled Wash Day, and it speaks to promoting natural hair with Black women and their daughters and that process of appreciating and the legacy of mothers who have natural hair and pass that on to their daughters and sort of leaning into that tradition of appreciating themselves and promoting self-love. Victoria, reading about your work, I was intrigued with your description of the coexistence between wake life and sleep life. How does your artwork reveal both levels of consciousness? Right. So I did a lot of psychology research when I began developing, I guess, just this body of work. I'm still quite an emerging artist, having just graduated. So I'm still navigating. There's been many theories about how dreams exist and why they exist. But the one that resonated with me the most was the idea that dreams are not separate from reality. Uh, like Sigmund Freud thought that they were very, very far away, um, a totally separate realm of the brain. But I follow more of a modern conceptualization of it, that it's act- dreams are just actually the kind of like recycling the information from your day. So all this imagery you're seeing, all these narratives that are being created, they're not coming from nowhere. They're coming from either, you know, the night before the dream or 10 years before the dream happened, kind of just like recycling the same information. So I guess, for example, my piece in the show that is titled Cereal, I am a frequent cereal eater. I don't know what else to say. Uh, (laughs) Cereal is a big part of my daily life. So I understand how that imagery was recycled into a dream where I simply dreamt that I was eating hot cereal, which as we know is pretty abnormal. And it was being boiled on a stove as if it were like soup or something. And I just thought it was the strangest thing 
And another interesting thing about, you know, the dreamscape is there's this sort of logic that resides in dreams where, oh, this makes sense. Of course, I'm boiling my cereal. That's how you eat cereal. <laughs> and then you wake up and you let a few minutes pass and you start to become reacclimated to reality. And you're like, oh, that was not normal. That's actually really, really absurd and funny. So yeah, it's kind of this back and forth between the mundane everyday parts of your life and then this sort of rudimentary visual language in dreams where everything is just kind of silly. You have a portrait of a baby being attacked by a snake. Yes. Did you mine one of your dreams for that subject? Yes, that one as well. I'd say about half my works are mind, as you said, from reality, from everyday experiences and just experiences and occurrences that I happen upon. But the other half does come from dreams and I do practice dream recollection and writing them down. But yeah, that one was a dream. I feel like that's more clearly a dream than the others. It's one of the most absurd ones I've probably done. But I dreamt that my younger brother, who was a baby in the dream, although he's 19 years old now, he was just playing in a park parking lot, sitting next to a bag of paper plates or styrofoam plates. And there was a snake coming out of the bag of paper plates and had a, like attached its fangs onto my brother's head. But the, I mean, that's absurd as it is. But what really did it for me was in the dream, my brother was not in pain. He was happy and smiling and giggling like babies do as if he were just playing with a friend. And I thought it was interesting that that tiny part of that dream is what was the most insane to me rather than the fact that there's a <laughs> snake there at all. It was just the fact that he was so unbothered by it. He was just having a great time. I am glad to know that, that there, there was a gentle <laughs> and even comic element to that. Dorisia mm -hmm. and Lauren, while judging the submissions for this show, which must have been daunting, what were your thoughts about Victoria's artwork? What's funny is when I saw it, it struck me because I didn't even realize there was fire under the bowl until I went back to the picture. And I was like, wait, because it was a beautiful image. It's, it's beautifully technically done already. But the, the feeling of it with the bowl of cereal, with the milk and it, there, it being under fire kind of set us a, a tone, I think, for how we curated the show actually matching the the feeling of the sweet discord when we saw her pieces that we were just already struck by the talent but to me there was you know her speaking to the dreamlike element of it the word that we kind of said that described our show we were like people are gonna think this is weird but it's not weird it's just you know all the works in the show have such a special feature mm -hmm. and a darkness but a really light yeah feeling about it as well yeah. so it's it's that's why we couldn't decide on the title we just said hey it's sweet discord because it's a mixture of both feelings and i really appreciate the surrealist quality in her work i believe there was about four or five submissions total and we were at some point concerned about do we have too many pieces how are we going to manage getting all of this artwork on the wall but for me it's certainly the the surrealist component and for the still life image that's also included in the mm -hmm. show it's just anyone who knows anything about art history the still lifes have always been a persistent a motif mm -hmm. and to have this contemporary still life in a moment of you just consider that artists are per perhaps working um, in solitude and just I just imagined her bringing these objects together <laughs> and putting them somewhere and, and painting them. So it's, it's really this wonderful contemporary lens on a very a classic artistic motif. Yeah. Hmm. Why is this exhibition an outstanding example for other galleries to elevate works by underrepresented artists? How can this be a blueprint? Well, I think Mint has really set the precedent this year for that with their programming and becoming more of a national space for artists to show their work. They are extremely professional and accepting of different voices. 
and very also cognizant of what voices are being heard in the content that they put out and that is consistent with not only the Atlanta community, but what the world is dealing with. And they are very intentional about that, about their purpose of putting emerging artists on the map and giving them a place to showcase their talent. And not to mention the invitation to work with curators. Mm -hmm. It seems like Mint has this way of inviting and allowing for these underrepresented voices to be heard, not only from the artistic creative end with artists, but also with the curators that they select to work with. Lauren Jackson Harris and Teresia Mia DeMar are the founders of Black Women in Visual Art and the jurors of Mint Gallery's new exhibition, Sweet Discord, with one of the featured artists, Victoria Sauer. This show will be on view through September 25th, and you can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll celebrate the life and art of actress Cicely Tyson. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The world lost a great actress when Cicely Tyson died in late January. And beyond her talent on stage and on screen, Miss Tyson advanced the opportunities for younger Black actors. Dr. Nsinger Burton is a professor of film and media studies at Emory University. She joins us now to talk about the legacy of Cicely Tyson. Dr. Burton, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Nice talking to you again, especially about a woman as phenomenal as Cicely Tyson. Oh my goodness. The tributes that have poured out from all over are such a testament to what a magnificent legacy she gave us. Cicely Tyson's debut film role was in the movie Sounder in 1972. The story's based on a children's book about a black family during the Depression era. What was the impact of the film and Cicely Tyson's portrayal of her character. So Cicely Tyson, as you know, Lois, started out as a model. And she, you know, what's interesting about her is that she started out what we would call in quotes later as an actress. So she started out as a model and then she became an actress after she was 30, age 30. So when she started acting and doing movies, that's when she kind of discovered this other talent that she had. She kind of knew she had it, but she was discouraged from really um, exploring it because, you know, she was raised in East Harlem. Um, she's a, the child of immigrants from the West Indies, and they had a very specific idea of what she should be doing. She was a young mother, and so the idea was that she should not um, really act. So I, this leads me all the way to her playing the character of Rebecca in Sounder. You know, she had a lot from which to pull. 
in this particular portrayal. And I think this is the movie that really, you know, established her as a leading actress because she had done bits and pieces, you know, in, in TV movies, on TV shows like Gunsmoke and Mission Impossible, she, you know, the Bill Cosby show. So she'd been kind of dabbling, but this is definitely the role that established her as a powerhouse. Well, he wants you to pay him a visit. Two of you could sit under a shady tree, drink ice cold whiskey, and shoot the breeze. Well, I hope you told him I was too busy for that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons that was was because she played opposite of her phenomenal co-star, Paul Winfield, the late Paul Winfield, who's an amazing actor. But the fact that she could hold her own against and really just uh, be so amazing in her portrayal and so empathetic and so beautiful and and really offer this haunting and emotional performance, uh, I think really just set the stage um, for her really 60 plus year career in entertainment. Yeah, that, I mean, for a debut role as a lead actress, it's astonishing that she made such a huge impact with that nominated for an Academy Award. Yes. And, you know, what was also interesting about Cicely Tyson is that she had had lots of other opportunities. So Sounders actually taking place during what we call the black exploitation era of film. And, and that's an era um, where lots of films with black cast were made and being pumped out, uh, mostly by United Artists but uh, were being pumped out. They were cheaply made, mass produced, and they were to service a Black audience. And I'm not talking about initial, you know, early Black exploitation films or some, all of the films that were in the Black exploitation era didn't satisfy this trope, but they, a lot of the representations were stereotypical. They were very negative. They were very demeaning and they focused on the underworld. So for Cicely Tyson to make this film sounder, she was very specific because she said she would not do those types of films. She wasn't going to play a prostitute. She wasn't going to play a, a drug addict. She wasn't going to play, uh, you know, some part of, or a member of the underworld. She was very particular about her roles and about the representation of Black people in general and Black women specifically. So the role of Rebecca um, was one with integrity, was, you know, reflective of the struggle uh, that women, uh, Black women uh, went through and were going through at that time. And, you know, the story of Sounder, you know, is really uh, a beautiful story about what can happen when you're trying to just survive in a world that is set up for your failure. And so I think her performance in it was haunting, but it also speaks to this film being made in 1972 during this particular era of film. So she could have done lots of different roles, I'm sure, you know, she's Cicely Tyson, um, but she chose to do Sounder, was selected to do Sounder and, and did a phenomenal job and, and held true to her values as well. Yeah, so the concern with dignity and dare I say being a role model was very important to her in her work. She was communicating a role beyond the film world. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it is fair to say. I think that at that time, you know, there were liberty opportunities for African-American, African-American actors for sure. And, and you know, African-Americans in front of and behind the camera. So you really had to make a decision if you were going to really pursue acting as a career. So it had to be something you really loved. Even people who were in those black exploitation films, they wanted to work. You know, they wanted to act. So you can't really condemn them. But I do think that Cicely Tyson, she really created, she really proved, you know, with that performance that there was and is an audience for those kinds of dynamic roles, for those roles that have integrity. And as you say, that bring dignity to the experience, the broad experiences of African-Americans. Um, and it also showed the different ways in which we live. You know, during the Black exploitation era, there's a lot of focus on the urban locations, but this is a very rural, you know, this is a, a movie set in a rural setting. And so really kind of, uh, you know, showing that that part of life that was still very much happening and, and is to this day happening. Um, you know, I think that it was just groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Two years after The Sounder, in 1974, Cicely Tyson appeared in the title role of 
the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, a woman over a hundred years old who was born into slavery. Telling her life story, we get a history lesson of what black people endured in Southern rural life during the entire course of the century between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. And Singa, what was unique about Miss Jane Pittman's narrative? What was unique about her narrative was that she showed the resiliency of being a Black woman who was born a slave and made it to civil rights. You know, if you look at the film, you know, one of the things that's just really wonderful about her character is how respected she is in the community. And you have, you know, a reporter who visits who wants to know her story, but you also have, you know, these young African-Americans who are really fighting for their rights. So it shows the generational struggle of being Black. I, I came down here to talk to you, Miss Jane. Are you 110 years old? <laughs> so to tell me. How far back can you remember? How far back you want to go? Well, uh, the war. Can you remember? World War. Second World, First World, or that, that Cuban World. You, you remember the Spanish-American War? Spanish-American War. <laughs> I can do a whole lot better than that. Do you remember getting your freedom? I hope I never forget it. How far back you won't go? You won't go back that far? I'll go back as far as you want to go. Now, you don't have to tell him nothing, Miss Jane. I know that, Lena. But if I don't, he's just going to sit here and worry me half to death. You mean it's all right? How far? You want me to go back as far as I can go? That's even further than when the freedom come. The changes that happen and what has to happen and what she experienced um, over the course of her life. So she, you go from being property to being free, to being free and then not having resources and trying to figure that out to, you know, to allegedly being free, but then being, you know, locked into the system of Jim Crow, where your rights are just repeatedly stripped from you and then getting out of that and then being part of the civil rights movement or, you know, the movements leading up to civil rights the civil rights movement, the codified civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, and being around to see that, where you have to go from being property to actually having the ability to fight for your rights, even though you're still facing the same level of danger and terror throughout you know, that lifetime. And I think Ernest Gaines, rest in peace, who's an amazing uh, writer, really that's one of the hallmarks of his work, and that is one of his books, the movie is based on on his novel about uh, Miss Jane Pittman. But I think it does a great job of showing the generational struggle that black people faced. Generational as well as from a woman's point of view. I That's mean, right. we, we weren't accustomed to that. Right. She, she is, it is definitely from her perspective. It is her story. Her uh, point of view, as you say, is elevated. And you're correct, you know, during this time period, that was very rare, you know, even in terms of narration at that time, you know, most narrators were men. Heck, most narrators are men now. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But especially at that time period. But yeah, you're right. It was, it was groundbreaking in so many ways. I mean, at the time, if you look at it now, you're like, oh, that makeup is, is not very good. But if you were looking at it at that time in 1974, the makeup was outstanding. The costume and wardrobe was outstanding. You know, uh, the way that it was shot was outstanding. The direction was outstanding. Um, so it was groundbreaking in just so many ways. And indeed, the makeup is different from the mind-blowing uh, <laughs> techniques that can be achieved today, although I think some of that is done in post-production as well. But even though she was this gorgeous young woman herself, Cicely Tyson seemed to inhabit the role of 
an elderly woman so naturally. I mean, her walk, the way she stooped, I watched it again in amazement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the Black community, uh, we have a saying that says, you know, she's been here before, or he's been here before. And what that means is that you have someone who is, you know, maybe young, they could be a child, but they say things and their uh, comportment, their affect is something, is, is of someone who is significantly older <laughs> and has seen much more of the world than their age, you know, their, their real world age. And I think Cicely Tyson is one of those people. I mean, she absolutely understands the craft of acting, right? She, she studies, you know, she's a student um, her entire life. You know, when you read her book, she's been, she studies her entire life acting. So, it, you know, there is the skill set, but there's also something about her when you watch her interviews, when you read things that she's written that su- suggests that she has been here before. You know, she has such great perspective and insight and, you know, self-reflection, you know, self-awareness. And I think all of that came out, you know, in this, you know, 110-year-old ex-slave who was from Louisiana. You know, that is one of the ways in which she was able to really carry herself from that time period all the way through. And I also would have just say her Caribbean roots. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about um, the relationship between uh, Caribbean Blacks and African Americans here in the country. But a lot of the slave trade entailed, you know, constant movement back and forth. So you may have been sent to, uh, you know, Navy, where she's from now. Um, and then you would come to Barbados and then you would come into Virginia, or North Carolina or whatever. Then they might send you back to those places and so forth and so on. So the connection uh, between people of West Indian descent and African-Americans um, in this country is, is significant from the beginning of that, you know, from that, that point where, she, where her story begins. And I think she was able to bring all of that experiential knowledge, all of that book knowledge and all of that performance as well as, you know, that inherent dignity and an inherent knowledge of having seen this world before. I think she just really brought that into her really poetic performance. You know, it's kind of heartbreaking in certain parts. You know, she gets motivated based on a conversation with a white Union soldier, which, of course, from a cr- critic's perspective is kind of problematic but because we knew that Black people were fighting back um, against slavery amongst themselves, too. But having said that, you know, you do see her growth and development as a person. And then in the end, she makes, she still, you know, um, understands that she has to choose. She gets to choose whether she helps out the brothers who are trying to engage in the Civil Rights um, Resistance Act or help out or talk to this reporter, this white male reporter who wants to tell her story. Um, She understands what it means to have power over your body and the ability to say yes and no, even at 110 years old. Dr. Nsenga Burton, professor of film and media studies at Emory University. We'll return to more of our conversation about Cicely Tyson in just a moment. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for joining me. If you just tuned in, we're listening back to my conversation with Dr. Nsinga Burton, who's a professor of film and media studies at Emory University. We've been talking about the legacy of actress Cicely Tyson. Here, Professor Burton discusses Tyson's use of silence in the movie The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. I will say that the use of silence in a movie can often be the most effective tool for creating emotion. Um, And without giving the movie away for those who may not have seen it, if you haven't, you should. (laughs) Um, Yes. You know, that... That kind of performance, I mean, Cicely Tyson, you know, one of the wonderful things about her ability was her ability to say so much without saying anything, right? It's her eyes, it's her her posture, it's her expression, you know? And I think that that scene you're talking about 
really shows or demonstrates, I mean, really the level of terror under which uh, Black folks were living at that time and the courage it took for someone to do something that, you know, now we just take for granted at that time. And I think the, the director's choice of the use of silence, right, was a way to just make it plain, like how, how insane that was, that that's what we were doing to people but how you literally had to choose between life and death in those instances in many ways. And I think that's what Miss Jane Pittman was com communicating without having said anything. You know, it was her face, it was her expression, it was her, her posture. I mean, it's a brilliant scene and it's a brilliant use of silence and actually is sometimes used as an example in films um, on sound and the, and the use of sound in films as an example of how to convey emotion, how to get your audience to focus really on the bigger issue. And I think that this, this works in that way, but it, it really only works because of Cicely Tyson's performance. Cicely Tyson was in Roots. She was Kunta Kinta's mother. Yes, yes. Uh, the symbolism yes. alone, the symbolism alone. <laughs> oh my God, I have goosebumps just thinking about it and that baby. And then later she was, I think it was barely two years after Roots, she was in A Woman Called Moses about Harriet Tubman. I would think the weight of responsibility because of the historic importance of that material, the necessity of telling stories that were left out of American history, this weight must have been enormous. Do you think that's what led her to work with Richard Pryor in the comedy Busted Loose? I think, yes, you are correct. So Cicely Tyson played Coretta Scott King before she played A Woman Called Moses, before she played Harry Tubman. <laughs> she played Coretta ah. Scott King in a TV movie. She played Blanche Rudolph, which was Wilma Rudolph's mother, in a TV movie. She played Benta, <laughs> uh, which was Kunta Kinte's mother in Ruth. Yes. So in my mind, she is like the ultimate. You know, prior to that, she had already played Jane Pitney. She had already played Rebecca and Sounder. But prior to this, you know, she is the ultimate mother figure, right? She is, and she plays these historic figures. And I think she's chosen to play them because, you know, the, the dignity that she brings to these roles and, you know, in addition to the, the talent, but the dignity that she brings to these roles. So when you have Bustin' Loose, where she plays the character of, of Vivian, yeah, she gets, to, she gets to be different, but still bring that piece of, um, of herself into that role as well. Um, and I think that it was also the opportunity to work with Richard Pryor, who was a huge star at that time, you know. Um, and, you know, after she plays that, she, of course, she plays Marva Collins, right? <laughs> in the Marva Collins story, um, right? And so you have her um, in this particular role. Yes, it is a comedy. Um, yes, it is co-starring Richard, uh, Richard Pryor, but Richard Pryor was a great dramatic actor. Um, he was, he was a brilliant man. He was a great writer. Yes, absolutely. And so this film, you know, it, it is a space for her to play a contemporary, right? Because, you know, most of these other films, you know, Roots, it, it, the time period, this is, you know, she's Kunta Kinte's mother. She is, you know, this is hundreds of years before, you know, Marvin Collins, Blanche uh, Rudolph, you know, these are historic figures, you know, Marvin Collins was still, I think, alive at this time, but she was still a historic figure. So Bustin' Lou, she gets to play a contemporary version of herself, right? She's a, a director of a foster home, <laughs> and she's trying to get these kids from Philly to Seattle. She is still in charge of, right? She's still the person who was looked to for guidance and nurturing and kindness. But, you know, she, she comes into contact with this parolee, um, who really is just trying to stay out of jail, <laughs> but is made to become a better person because of her. And I think, you know, conversely, you know, Richard Pryor becomes a better actor because of her, right? You can't work against um, Cicely Tyson in the way that she worked against, you know, Paul Winfield and Sounder. Like you can't help but become a better performer when you're working, you know, with that kind of talent. And so I think that um, Cicely Tyson, and in this particular role, they kind of do a dance, you know, she kind of leans back. You don't see 
that powerful performance that, she, that we're used to getting from her, right? You know, where it's, it's dramatic and it's moving the narrative forward. And, um, you know, she's commanding the screen. You know, she really is sharing that space with, with Pryor. And she's kind of, you know, I, I think that she is kind of leaning back, you know, leaning out of the role and letting him come forward. Right, letting his brilliance show, letting him um, show that he is a complex figure, you know, which we already knew, but he's a complex uh, talent and he can do these things and he can be funny and touching and poignant. And so I think that's what's great about Bustin' Loose, you know, it is a comedy, but it's also allows her to, to not be, do the heavy lifting, because that's what you're talking about, Lois, like she's not doing the heavy lifting in the film and she has the opportunity to really nurture and mentor uh, uh, Richard Pryor in that particular role. And that's something that's come out in so many of the tributes, her her generosity. Right after she died, Tyler Perry wrote, she was the grandmother I never had, and the wisdom tree I could always sit under to fill my cup. My heart breaks in one beat, while celebrating her life in the next. What about her work with Tyler Perry? I mean, here you're a film scholar. What do you make of her work with him? I think Tyler Perry does not get credit for, I would say, resuscitating the careers of some dynamic Black women actors. And I'm not saying that we, you know, because Cicely Tyson is legend, period. Yeah. <laughs> you could have yes. like stopped making movies in like 81. <laughs> and we still yeah. be like, oh my God, Cicely Tyson is a legend. <laughs> so I'm not right. saying that, you know, he 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 made her. I'm saying that he resuscitated a career that should have never gone quiet because of Hollywood's obsession with youth and Hollywood's obsession with telling a very particular type of story, uh, even when they tell Black stories. She was also godmother to his son, uh, which I think people don't know or not too many people know. And Tyler Perry would also, you know, whatever pay she was going to have, because, you know, she was in the union, of course, he would, you know, what his, his words were pad. I say that in quotes, you can't see the quotes, but he would enhance her pay because of all of the poor pay that Black actors received um, back in the day, you know, when, they, when she was making all those wonderful movies, but being underpaid um, and not very well treated necessarily by the industry. So he would do that for her. You know, the fact that they worked together, you know, she worked in his films, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, uh, where again, she played, you know, the woman of wisdom, Medea's Family Reunion um, in 2006. And she started in that with Maya Angelou, you know, another like, you know, reflection of just great talents and performance, performers from a very particular era. Why Did I Get Married Too? She was in that, that was in 2010. And, you know, what's also interesting about him uh, and their relationship, Tyler Perry and her relationship, he made this movie called Alex Cross. And there was a lot of talk about it because people think of, uh, you know, Tyler Perry as a writer, director. They don't really think of him as an actor, even though he plays Medea. He also plays other roles in his films. So for him to be stepping out and playing this kind of action role, it was like a political thriller. Alex Cross is based on a, a book. But he also, I mean, I, I assume that she was in that movie because of him as well. She starred in that movie too. <laughs> so the relationship between them was definitely mentor-mentee, but it was also one of friendship and family. And I think that his association with people like Cicely Tyson and Maya Angelou and Oprah Winfrey and what have you really elevated his status in the industry from a, an artistic perspective. And I think that her association with him really allowed her, you know, resuscitated her career and allowed her to be the performer that she wanted to be, you know, in these particular movies. And then, you know, of course, she went on to star in, in a number of other roles. But I think that, the, you know, they had a synergy, they had a mutual respect, mutual affection. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if you're privileged enough, you can work with someone that becomes your family. You, you, I, I know that that's the case with you, Lois. Um, and so I think that this is what happened with them as well. You know, mm. Cicely Tyson landed in Shondaland yeah. playing, playing no less than Annalise's mother, Ophelia Harkness. We have 
a clip. Cicely Tyson's murder debut. Yes. There was a time when TV was popular entertainment. Of course, it still is. But we have actors the caliber of Viola Davis and Cicely Tyson playing on weekly network television shows here. No lowbrow versus highbrow distinctions, or, or at least that's been blurred. What does it say about Cicely Tyson that she had the gravitas to conquer roles that are touchstones in cinema and also enjoyed working in lighter entertainment? Well, first of all, Cicely Tyson and How to Get Away with Murder is amazing as Ophelia. I think that you are correct. There is a, more of a blur uh, between television and film. You know, at one, at one point you used to have to choose, right? You were either a TV actor or a film actor, like you were not both. But I don't think that's really been the case now for a very long time. But, you know, with the um, development of OTT over the top, the streaming technology, it's even less of a case. But, you know, this is a woman who was in, you know, Madam Secretary. She was in House of Cards. You know, she cherished the day, a TV series. She was in that as well. You know, and then, of course, how to get away with murder, which she plays. I mean, literally, right? Because she, she is the mother of Viola Davis in the industry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like she is the, the mentor, right? The, the mother of these dynamic Black actors who come behind her and, you know, on, on her shoulders, they stand and they willingly say that, you know, they, they say that. But, you know, she's in this particular place because of her talent and her skill. You know, she is someone who has staying power in a way that other actors from her generation did not. And I think just because she's always willing to reinvent herself while still staying true to the core of who she is and looking for those roles that have some type of, of integrity, looking for those roles of complicated figures. You know, even though she said that she would not play uh, a member of the underworld, you know, back in the 70s, she played, you know, um, an underworld boss in the movie Hoodlum. And so she thought that that character was at least doing something for the good of the community, you know? So I think that's what you see in her performances, particularly in television. They're still dynamic. They're still outstanding. I mean, her, the, the clip you're going to play for How to Get Away with Murder, outstanding. You know, it really shows Ophelia conflict with her daughter, right? So it speaks to the mother-daughter conflict. It speaks to a history of abuse in their family and the fact that they have been estranged or, you know, had this complicated relationship because, you know, Annalise is under the impression that her mother did not protect her. Um, and we learn a lot about that particular scene. Um, you also have her mother, um, this whole idea of Black women being able to get over stuff and get out of bed. You know, Annalise is literally lying in the bed. This is like when she takes off her wig, which is monumental in TV history. But she's taking off her wig. She's not wearing makeup. She's lying in the bed. She is bereaved because her husband is dead. Her lover is brought up on charges. Like, but she's dealing with a lot. <laughs> and her mom comes in and is like, get up out of that bed. Like, you cannot stay in the bed. And it's this whole idea of the superwoman, right? The Black superwoman. Like, you just cannot be tired. And how that is passed on generationally. Like, you're not allowed to grieve. You're not allowed to stay down or to admit that you are hurt or you are bereaved um, or you are sad or that you are depressed. So, <laughs> your low-count, sorry husband, who I said don't marry, couldn't keep his Peter in his pants and went slept with a white woman. Then the fool goes and kills the white woman when he finds out that she has his bun in her nasty oven. And after that, your ex-police boyfriend kills the no-good husband and gets himself arrested. And you, now, ain't got no husband, ain't got no boyfriend, and you hold up in this bed like the queen of Sheba. Does that about cover it? Oh, I'm all into this one. I have to get Lottie's grandson to pull up the stories on the Google. I know what you've been up to, calling me up, talking about... I need you. Hell yes. Running around here like you somebody. Get up. Smell like somebody's dying in here. Come on. 
Get your foot up out this bed and get in the shower. Get up. I wrote about this scene in this book I co-edited on, on mental health, uh, Black women's mental health. And the scene is wonderful because it really speaks to all of those challenges that we have in our lives. Cicely Tyson had a very complicated relationship with her daughter. Um, she actually dedicated her book, Just As I Am, to her daughter. But she had a very complicated relationship with her daughter. And so you kind of see that part of her in this particular character. Uh, and you see those generational issues that affect Black women, women in general, I would say, Black women specifically in this particular episode. And then even, you know, we, we all know that Annalise had a different name, you know, um, <laughs> Annie Mae, you know, was her name. And her mother's like, I'll call you whatever I want to call you. Because <laughs> uh, I brought you into the world. I'll take you out of it. So it's that homespun, old school, culturally rich type of performance that speaks to generations of women, not just Black women, but especially to Black women who know these women, who are our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, our mothers, and the complicated relationships that we have. And in spite of all of that, the fierce love and loyalty that we have to one another. Emory University Professor of Film and Media Studies and Singer Burton discussing the legacy of Cicely Tyson. You can find more information about her film recommendations on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be the Atlanta-based violinist, composer, and now film actor, Alice Hong. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews and shows so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I hope you'll follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.